What's up, queens? It's your host, Ro. Do you like female dating strategy? Would you like to see us expand on a lot of different platforms? Then please sign up for our Patreon. We are currently targeting a $10,000 per month goal, which would allow us to work full-time on female dating strategy content in order to expand on different platforms and upgrade our media presence. As a special thank you to our current Patreon subscribers, we will be increasing our upload rate for our bonus content to be weekly on Fridays, as well as offering a special discount for paid annual memberships so please check out our patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy that's patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy thank you let's start the show what's up queens welcome to the female dating strategy podcast the meanest female only podcast on the internet i'm your host ro and this is Savannah. And this is Lilith. And today we have the return of our esteemed guest, Dr. Gail Dines. Hi, Gail. Welcome back. Hey, so great to be so great to be back. It's I'm so looking forward to this. Hi, everyone. I hope you're all well. Yeah, we're doing great. Your episode was a fan favorite. So a lot of people had never really heard comprehensive porn criticism from a respected educator before your podcast. So, um, thank you for coming to our platform and giving us, you know, the tools to keep discussing the harms of porn and just, you know, really introducing our audience to the foundation of female dating strategy, which does have a lot of basis in porn critique. Great. So that's, I think that's why you're so popular. You're so one of the few places that does. Yeah. It's not without criticism, to be honest, um, from a lot of other mainstream (laughs) feminist, a lot of other mainstream feminist publications. Uh, So we have a conference that's coming up in a few weeks. I don't know if you want to actually talk about that first, but we're we're actually, surprise, surprise, all of our uh, guests are going to be hearing this for the first time. Uh, We will be giving a lecture as part of this conference, and we're going to talk about how our porn criticism was a basis for the expansion of female dating strategy and how a lot of women for the first time because of visiting female dating strategy finally had the language to understand what was going on in their relationships uh, sexually as well as like just general dating culture and how it's been influenced by the influx of porn. Totally. And people love you. I have to say, when I was on that and I got, you know, so many emails afterwards and people just love what you're doing. Women love what you're doing because in a way you're a lifesaver. You're countering the narrative of pornography um, from a feminist perspective. And, you know, a lot of the so-called, I call them faux feminists, are trying to say how great porn is and how empowering. And I think you're telling the truth of women's lives. Oh, shucks. Thank you. It's always great to hear uh, good feedback because we get so much, we get dragged so much. A lot of that has to do with like the expansion of OnlyFans, especially during the pandemic and uh, the recession that was induced by the pandemic. There's just been seemingly like this media push to really like legitimize the sex profession and say this is going to be empowering and this is like an avenue for women because of the fact that there's just so many women who are now becoming reliant on the sex industry because they're out of work. Totally. And, but, but let me just tell you, the average uh, woman on OnlyFans makes something like $300 a month. So, you know, you always see in the media somebody is making hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, that is so rare. And in fact, many of the women who end up on OnlyFans are in a worse position afterwards because they can't get um, hired because of their digital footprint. Um, they get docked, they get capped, they get death threats. So, you know, there's a whole seedy side 
like, well, the whole thing is seedy, but you never actually hear what's going on with these women. And I've spoken to a number of women who did OnlyFans, and they so regret it. They so regret it, but they're desperate for money, and I understand that. You know, it's just we live in a culture where how do women make money? Right, by being part of the sex industry, and it is a minimal amount of money. Let's be very clear about this. Yeah, that that's been pretty apparent, even from reading a lot of the reddits that are dedicated to sex workers and to women who work on OnlyFans. Is that uh, Reddit is actually responsible for a lot of their traffic? So you'll see a lot of them. It was so bad at one point that like women who had OnlyFans pages were just spamming a lot of different subreddits trying to get people to subscribe to their OnlyFans to the point where those major subreddits started banning them and saying, "Okay, you can't promote your OnlyFans here." But even they would admit, like, "Oh, I've only made fifty dollars and I've been spamming all of the subreddits," mm-hmm. and th- that was their way of actually doing their OnlyFans marketing. There's actually another way. They have what they call a referral scheme, which I prefer to call a pimping scheme. So let's say OnlyFans is actually a pimping platform. They pimp out the women because they they take 20% of what they make. And also they offer the women extra money if they bring friends friends to OnlyFans. They give them a percentage of their earnings. So not only are they pimping out women, they're turning the women into pimps because they're desperate for money, these women. So they'll bring their friends on and what have you. So I just see it as one big pimping pyramid scheme. And what's interesting about that referral um, aspect of it is that Tim Stokely actually um, introduced that to ensure that the business would survive because he's had... Um, he had several failed businesses and his dad, who was an investment banker for Barclays, was like, okay, OnlyFans is your last shot. This is the last time we're going to give you 10 grand. So he actually introduced that incentive just to keep the business going, um, like not necessarily to even help out the women who benefit from that particular scheme. It's, 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 it's really exploitative, totally. really, really exploitative totally. if you think about it. Well, anyone who's setting up um, a, kind of a sex coming site is not out there to help women. Yes, yes. I mean, they're out there to make money and they're making money off, off monetizing women's bodies. So, you know, don't look to these as any saviors of women, believe me. And monetizing like the bodies of really vulnerable women as well. Like, it's really sad to see the discourse on social media when you see sex workers say, oh, you know, women with disabilities, OnlyFans is their only option, as if, um, you know, their only contribution to society can be them, you know, sexually servicing men. Exactly. And actually, you know, I would say rather than calling them sex workers, they're really sexually exploited. You know, it's not really, I don't really see this as as work because um, of the conditions under which they have to do this. The fact is that they're being pimped out. You know, I mean, I think the porn industry, the sex industry in general, wants us to think about it as work because what it does is that it kind of whitewashes the reality of what life is like for women in the sex industry. And, you know, what, what job descriptions do you have where you have to go to work naked where you have to listen to all these creepy men telling you what to do sexually it's it's just sexual exploitation and the women who've exited the um sex industry always say it was paid right it was not it was not work i was sexually exploited and it was sexual slavery so the women i work with who've exited the industry all different types of the industry never call themselves sex workers um so one of the common threads we've seen among people who are on OnlyFans is that OnlyFans uh, is actually 
to be successful in OnlyFans, you generally have to go through the traditional porn system. And the traditional porn system is obviously very exploitative because you're dealing with mostly producers and uh, on directors that are men. And the argument that some women have made is that, okay, well, if you're doing an OnlyFans, it puts the power, I guess, the direction and the power back in the hands of the actual content creator. What would you say to that? Well, I would say, first of all, just by we know how much money they make, what they haven't got power, you know, they're scrambling to just put food on the table. And also, you know, what kind of a world is it where this is the way that women can survive financially? I mean, we have to sort of realize we live in a patriarchal society where women's worth is measured in, quote, their hotness. And so I think it's just one, you know, big exploitation of women's bodies, the monetization, commodification. Um, it doesn't put anything in women's hands. What it does is actually ta- often takes away from their power because um, employees, employers, um, you know, follow their digital footprint. They often get fired. They get um, death threats. They get stalked. All of these things they don't talk about on OnlyFans. And that's the reality of the women on there. So, and also the women are asked to do stuff straight out of porn with dildos and what have you. And some of the men, you know, will bring actually porn and say, do this. And so, you know, the women are often coerced into doing sex sex. They really don't want to do. But if they don't, they'll lose their fan base. Very true. The argument that we've made um, publicly is that creating an, a profit incentive for women sexually servicing men is can never inherently can't really be feminist and that it's just in a, another patriarchal system and it's kind of interesting that the sex work is work mantra has gone unchecked without anybody looking at it through the lens of okay in what context are we talking about it being work we're talking about it essentially being sexual entertainment and women uh, providing a sexual service to men often when you incentivize that you incentivize them to have sex against their desire and will because they have to make money to live right and every time you know our our big 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 push at least at female dating strategy is to normalize the idea that sex is something that women do solely for our own pleasure and not as a service to anyone else but it's really really surprising because on both sides of the political aisle they both have seemed to just had this like consigned resignation that sex is a service women have to perform for men on the, on uh, the conservative side. A lot of times they talk about sex being like your marital duty or something you're supposed to do because as a wife, you're obligated to give your body to your husband. And then like, you know, they have all those purity balls and this um, worship of virginity. And on the other hand, on the more liberal side, you still have this idea that women exist to sexually service men and that porn is a way for women to make money and that um, women uh, having sex with men, uh, ideas like bait and sex, ideas of uh, that women's bodies um, uh, can be monetized, that uh, under the capitalist system, somehow uh, this is going to be empowering for women. Um that idea still gets perpetrated from more liberal magazines and they there's like no pushback on the idea. That- That's right. And you know what's so interesting about these woke men who are arguing this is that a lot of them have a really good analysis of capitalism. Right? They understand the nation, the nature of exploited labor. And yet when it comes to porn, it's like all of that analysis goes out the door. It's like they can't hold on to that analysis and have an erection. <laughs> You have to pick which one, because once they get aroused, you know, it's, their analysis is out the door. Suddenly, porn is unlike any other industry. It's not exploitive. It's not 
uh, even in a capitalist system. And I speak to these guys, I say, well, you know, you criticize capitalism, as I would, for its exploitive nature of labor. Well, think about women and what it does. And But then you get words like empowerment thrown at you and sex positive. So it's like all their brains just drop out of their head, you know? Ugh, don't get me started on socialist men. I think a lot of them are not even arguing in good faith. Um, in my personal, like, dating experience, I find a lot of these, you know, left-leaning men are snakes hiding in the uh, sand. Opportunists. A lot of them are actually very predatory. And, you know, I'm still a socialist. I'm still left-wing, but I'm, I'm feeling very betrayed by, you know, the men within my own, you know, political group. Totally. And that, you know, that makes perfect sense. And Andrew Dworkin once said, you know, really, it doesn't matter if you're being fucked from the right or fucked from the left, you end up being fucked. So, you know, both are the, it's the same, it's two sides of the same coin, is that the notion is, is that sex is dirty, and the dirt in it is women, and that on the right, the dirt stays just with the husband who's had access to women, and then on the left, all men can have access to her. So it's really the same idea. It's just deciding whether you're going to democratize the access or keep it just with the husband. It's like sexual communism on the left. <laughs> We've made fun <laughs> of that idea, but yeah. I also think the big problem is that because uh, liberal feminists have really gotten behind this idea and have been like feeding them these talking points. You know, I've, I've criticized liberal feminism as basically being the PR wing of the porn industry, where anytime someone tries to make a critique of the porn industry, you have like liberal feminists feminists coming uh, in to jump in and say like, well, these are this, uh, this is these women's choice. And what if a woman wants to do this? And like, they don't, they don't want to have the difficult discussion about the inherently unfair power dynamics and inherently exploitative nature of the sex industry towards women and how that can uh, completely and totally perpetuate this patriarchy and inequality they purport to want to upend. Um, and because they don't want to do that analysis and they just want to leave it at a very surface level, it gives a lot of these other men who are part of this fringe movement the confidence to kind of come out and just say, well, yeah, I'm supporting women by supporting the sex industry by, you know, buying porn, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that you put it so well. You put it, that was just perfectly put is the way in which these men, you know, they want to have it both ways and they say they're supporting us when in reality what they're fighting for is their right to have complete and utter access to women's bodies. That's what they're arguing. And then they have the cheek to hide behind women. And when liberal feminists come out with this pro-porn empowerment, blah, blah, blah argument, it's such a betrayal of their sisters because when women say it, the men then can throw the women and say, forward and say look she says it it's not me so it's just such damage to women and feminism when these so-called liberal feminists defend it and let me say many of these women who defend it and say it's great they're not doing it they've got nice cushy jobs in the academy with tenure and stuff they're not standing on the street corners tussling you know right yeah the absolute <laughs> smugness of someone with a desk job saying like all work is exploitation yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I, I was in the academy for 32 years, and I have to tell you, you know, when I went to work, I didn't have to have panic buttons in my office. I didn't, I wasn't raped for money, and that they would compare academia, which is a really cushy number. I mean, especially if you've got tenure, you know, you basically are a job for life, and you get paid to think, you get paid to talk, you get paid to teach. I mean, it's just 
a wonderful job. And then they have the absolute gall to suggest that they're doing, you know, academic work and the women out there are doing sex work. I just, I find that so abhorrent, just abhorrent. I mean, again, well, unfortunately, like we weren't like alive when a lot of these conversations were being had in like the first or in second wave feminism, but it did seem to me that, you know, the, the second wave of feminism seemed like a lot of middle-class mostly white women. And that was the criticism of the move in the first place. We're like, okay, being chained to the home as homemakers is like, uh, we're not fulfilling our potential, that it's a system of oppression. And so they fought to be able to make gains uh, in a workplace, but largely focused on white collar work. And then when it Mm -hmm. came to like working class women were basically like, oh, well, go do sex work. Right. And it's like, well, if you thought living in a nice home with a single sexually servicing a single man was oppressive, why wouldn't this be oppressive, right? Like if you're a woman who can barely make exactly. ends meet and you have to uh, sexually service multiple men, it just, it to me, it just didn't compute like how they felt like something that was, you know, relatively cushy and privileged for most of the world's women was oppressive, but then can't see how it could be inherently oppressive for working class women. And then they get confused. Or women, or of, women color. of color. Or women, yeah. remember, women of color here. I mean, so many of the gains that white elite women made was on the backs of poor white women and poor black women. I mean, when they went out to the home to work, who, who was cleaning the home? Who was doing the childcare? Who was doing all the shit work that you need to keep the house going when while those women were going out to work. So this is where a big rift in the second wave came when Bessie Friedan in The Feminine Mystique said to women, go out and get a job. And black women knew immediately, especially in the United States, well, okay, who's going to come in and do the shit work? It's going to be us. And so it, it really was built on the backs. And they continued to do this when they put forward the notion of sex work and the notion that it's a legitimate way to earn money and it's okay for those women. Because, you know, the further away you are from having to service men and having, you know, a dick put in your mouth for 10 bucks, the more you can say it's an okay way to live. And they wouldn't want their daughters to do this e- either. That's for clear. That's clear. But it's okay for their those other women, and it's okay for their their daughters, those women's daughters. So I, I just again, it's such an elitist, racist, classist argument that there's a category of women who should be out there doing so called sex work. Yeah, and I think they're then confused why a lot of these women turn to conservatism. And I'm like, well, if you if you put them in a position where you say their their feminism <laughs> relies on like being sexually available, you can see a lot of women kind of. Uh, rebuffing and so I know Andrea Dworkin talks about that way more eloquently than I can exactly but, um, and right-wing women yeah yeah about yeah. right-wing women about like how you know it's it's so far and away impractical for women especially if they work you know gendered work if they're doing jobs where most of the their workforce is women like nursing teaching house cleaning etc you know they're not necessarily you know, they're, they're, they're looking for answers and solutions to make their lives materially better. And when like your reaction to them is like, Oh, go do sex work or like, uh, Oh, or, or, uh, wanting them to focus on women in white collar jobs and like getting the corner office. And then a lot of women who aren't in that kind of career track are like, okay, well then how does this help me? And how does, how does your feminism actually make my life better? And that's not always, uh, that case is not always made clear. And the truth is remember in the second wave, Radical feminists always talked about liberation. We never talked about empowerment because liberation was the collective liberation of all women. Empowerment is a neoliberal individualistic term, which basically says, if I'm okay, then fuck you. 
right? Because this is what empowerment is. Liberation is, if you are not okay, if my sister over there is not okay, then you know what? I will do whatever it takes to make her life okay. So it was really much more of a kind of collective idea that we're all in this together, we're all sisters, and that we fight for each other and we have each other's backs. And what's happened in this faux feminism is just throwing women under the bus. You know, these elite women are throwing white women and poor white women and women of colour under the bus. And what's interesting in what um, I always found amazing, well, and whatever Andrew Dworkin wrote, I was always, you know, knocked out by the brilliance. But she said, you know, right-wing women aren't stupid. They know exactly what feminists know, that men can be lethal and dangerous, and what right-wing women are doing are just figuring out the best way to survive. Yeah, yeah. So with that, since we're kind of talking about working-class women and, like, uh, people of color, uh, the most infuriating argument that I have seen <laughs> coming out of this uh, this OnlyFans uh, fiasco is, I know we kind of touched on it, but uh, that supporting the sex industry is somehow empowering disabled people, the LGBT community, and uh, people of color. And they've done a very sly bait and switch where they've now... M- in the, in the name of inclusivity have made these people the forefronting face of the sex industry in order to garner sympathy, despite the fact that they're probably, and not even probably definitely based on like all of the available um, information, making the least money from this industry and being exploited the most because it is completely legal to assign less monetary value to people based on their race, based on their sex, based on their uh, their sexual orientation, right? So I, what do you think of the media switch into like trying to use uh, people like this as the face of the sex industry and justify its existence? Well, it's what men are doing is that basically they've, they've put women's bodies, especially again, poor women and poor white women and women of color, they've, they've made them the shield, so, and the men hide behind it. If you notice in many of the debates, you very rarely see in the media a John interview saying, well, you know, I really want to jerk off to this uh, slut because, you know, she. Uh, this is what I like to do. Then you don't hear the Johns talk. And by the way, I don't think there's such a thing as a slut. It's obviously patriarchal invention. But they have used white women, these liberal feminists, and these liberal feminists have allowed themselves to be used as a shield and as shills of the industry. And I want to give a really sort of, clear example um about a few years ago we had a conference although i live in the states we did a conference um in the uk on porn and we got picketed by the so-called sex workers organizations and they were outside and it was a cold day and there was a few men mainly uh, the pimps and they were picketing and then it started to rain i mean just pour with rain and all the men took shelter and left the women outside in the rain picketing us they were soaked to the skin they were barely clothed and meanwhile the guys had gone to the local um coffee shop to have a cup of tea to keep warm you know it was yeah i mean it was it was just so and we actually went outside and we said to the women come in you know, we'll give you a cup of tea, we'll give you some biscuits, come in, don't be outside in the rain. And oh, it was just so clear there was the women getting soaked through to the skin and the guys taking shelter. And that's what they do. They shelter behind women. And then other women feel, well, if, if these women are saying it's sex work and it's okay, who am I as a woman to say that's not okay? And then what happens is because we have an individual analysis and not a collective, it looks like a cat fight. 
when in fact what it is is a political movement to basically liberate women from the sex industry. It's not a one-on-one catfight here. These are our sisters, the women in the sex industry. They're not our enemies. Yeah, I think I think the framing of the idea that feminism is about liberation instead of just or solely individual empowerment is what's been missing missing totally from feminist media. Also, the notion of empowerment is just I feel like when you say I feel empowered, that's just a feeling. Like it's like that's it's right. the sort of adrenaline rush of doing something taboo, I guess. And you know, I find you know people who say that they feel empowered when they do porn. I I wonder if they're conflating real power with like a dopamine hit from (laughs) adrenaline or something. When you do something taboo, you know, you get that sort of thrill, right? Um, That can often be conflated with, you know, yeah, dopamine hit or whatever. It makes you feel like you're on top of the world, but you're actually not. But the women in the industry don't feel, I mean, when you talk to them, they, they don't believe in that empowerment. When you, when you're talking to them off camera, by the way, that's not the terms they use. They use them when they're on camera and their pimps are within, you know, um, spitting distance of them. But in reality, I've interviewed so many women in and out of the sex industry. And this is not a term that they use. It's a term that they are forced to use to shill for the porn industry because they, they need the work. They need, you know, we live in a patriarchal capitalist racist society and you need to put food on the table and especially if you've got kids you'll do whatever it takes to put food on the table certainly if that was the only way i could have fed my kids that i would have done it there's no question if that was the only way so and you know i want to give an example i love what you said about empowerment being a feeling so i was um going to give a interview on one of the big uh, I think it was at CNN. So I was flying on the seven o'clock shuttle from 7 a.m. from Boston to New York. And of course, who's on the 7 a.m. shuttle? It's basically American capital, right? Going from Boston to New York. So I get on this shuttle at 7 a.m. I'm the only woman on there. All these guys are dressed in three-piece suits. And I happen to have been reading um, a third-wave book. And the uh, actual introduction was done by a very well-known third-waver. And what she was saying was, before she wrote the introduction to the book, she felt really empowered because she'd just gone out and had a full Brazilian wax. And that made her feel. She put this in the introduction, okay, to the book. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to tap one of these guys on the shoulder on the plane. I'm going to say... You might think you're empowered because you're, you own Wall Street and you own money. But let me tell you, you're not empowered. It's our bikini waxes that empower us. You know, I mean, how hideous is that yeah. to say that? And, and just as I was sitting on that plane looking at all of these guys going, you know, backwards and forwards between the main places of, of capital in America and this, you know, somehow the Brazilian wax trumped being um, a a hedge fund guy or whatever they were doing going to New York. It just shows that they've got no material analysis. It's if I feel this way or if I think this way, but that's not how we live our lives. We live our lives within an ecosystem of institutions that consistently work to limit women's life chances. You know, the economy, the legal system, the medical system. We don't live as individuals feeling empowered or disempowered. We have to live within this system that men have set up and have set up in order to reproduce the power that they have. And we have to, and many women, especially the third wave neoliberals, will settle for the crumbs of the system, the absolute crumbs. 
forget half the pie they're just settling for the crumbs my jaw is still dropping at the idea of feeling empowered by brazilian wax reminds me you know when you Mm -hmm. get a haircut and you're feeling super fresh and you feel like you're on top of the world it's like you feel maybe good about yourself for a day but that's not it's not going to get you a promotion at work it's not going to put money in your bank account it's not gonna you know give make you able to influence you know the government and so on um yeah, that was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's not empowerment. That's just <laughs> grooming. <laughs> no, and also remember the bikini wax. What it's doing is pulling hair from, you know, the most, um, one of the most painful parts of the body in terms of, you know, waxing. And women bleed during it. Um, I When I was writing Pornland, I interviewed women who worked in um, sort of, you know, manicure and pedicure shops who were doing Brazilian waxes. And they said, you know, I hate doing it. The women are in pain. I have to deal with the blood. And they also said, interestingly, the women said, I feel like I'm turning them into a child. And I, I hate to do it. You know, this this is what we're meant to settle for, for empowerment. It feels like cope. <laughs> it's like they know that they don't have any power, so they tell themselves they're in control so that they don't feel... Like, it's very psychologically uncomfortable to be aware of the fact that you don't have any power. I think because it's infinitely monetizable to sell people empowerment in a form of a product. So liberal feminism is more successful because it's more easily grasped in the capitalist system, right? Because you can sell people stuff with it. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, you know, the irony is the gym at the bottom of my road, which is for women only, is called empowerment. So evidently, you can get empowerment through going to the gym. I mean, through your membership. It's just ludicrous that this is what it's considered as. So I think you're making really important points. Here. And also, I think, you know, all of us, I think as human beings, we have a desire to have power over our lives. This is what it means to feel like you exist, you're seen, and that you can survive in this system. And this is what patriarchy does. It robs women of the power they have in order to survive. And I mean here very much on the material level, putting food on the table, having you know shelter, and all the things that you need to make life livable. So you rob women of that, and then you sell it back to them in go and get your bikini wax. Go and, you know, dress up in a certain way so that you look hot and fuckable. That's the empowerment. So this is kind of a, a touchy topic. Here, here's uh, where we've gotten to some controversy with some of the radical feminists um, who have been part of FDS. Is like FDS is, at the end of the day, still a dating strategy. So we do frame a lot of our cultural critique from uh, a radical feminist lens, but with the understanding that most women who are heterosexual are going on date men and they want to be sexually attractive to men. How do you reconcile like the reality of heterosexuality with um, the, the pressure to perform for men, right? Like it just seems like a really hard balance to strike. And we've, we've been attempting to do it here, but it's not always like, it's not without criticism, right? Like we don't necessarily always go into like, you know, if people want to wear makeup, like we don't go, go a ton into like critique of the, the beauty industry, but we do say like, obviously if you're hurting yourself, by getting like plastic surgery or anything that's going to like cause you infection or do damage, it's probably not worth to do. (laughs) And don't let capitalism make you insecure about things that like you weren't insecure about before. There's been like, uh, there's like a a magazine I saw where they were talking about like people having dark elbows and knees. And I was like, you know, if they hadn't put this in this magazine, I never would have thought about that. Right. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, think about hip dips, like great. Another thing for me to be insecure about. (laughs) Exactly. I never would have thought about that. So I guess my question to you, just to kind of get 
talk about this because this is a, a controversy, I think, for us is like, how do you reconcile like wanting to be sexually attracted to men? Because, you know, women do, and especially young girls when like they're, you know, they're just discovering having crushes on boys. They want boys to like them. They want boys to like them. And then also feeling an actual, actually staying empowered, actually staying actually empowered to set your boundaries and uh, not uh, unintentionally exploiting yourself, I should say. You know, I don't think they can be reconciled. The truth is, and and, and, I, and I saw this in my classes because, you know, when I was teaching my feminist theories seminar, um, I would te- the students would have to read books and then every they'd have to do a report on them and an analysis. And always when we got into the beauty industry, what would happen is that this is where they would really fall apart. And, and they couldn't write the article. They'd say, I need a week. They think the students would say, we cannot write our reflection papers. You need to give us longer. Because for them, the heterosexual women were struggling so much with this, with the, the knowing the beauty industry, the harms it caused, the way we were forced to self-sexualize. And this was always, of all I taught, this always caused the most discomfort in the class. And at one point I said to the students, look, don't drive yourself crazy. If you need to wear makeup to feel better because that's how you've been socialized, you know what? We've got bigger fish to fry, which is pulling down patriarchy. So don't drive yourself nuts. Do what you have to do and figure out what the boundaries are. But I said, the most important thing is don't mind fuck yourself. Don't say I'm doing this because I want to do it for me. Understand that this is how women have been socialized. It's been ingrained in women through the culture. Just understand that. And at some point, come to some sense of, um, I can go this far self-sexualizing, but no further. And, and and figure out what your lines are. But I told my students, you know, we've got so many, so much work to do as radical feminists that really sitting there worrying over whether you should put that extra bit of makeup on is not, it's really taking away from the work that we need to be done. And the interesting thing is, you know, there's so many ways, if we didn't live in a patriarchal system, that what it would mean to be sexually attractive, it would mean to be smart, funny, have an interesting, you know, be quirky and all of these things. But what a patriarchal porn culture does is say the only way that you can be visible is to be fuckable. Forget the PhD, forget the interesting person you are, forget you're just stripped bare of everything that makes you human and in its place you're offered this fuckability image. So I just think it's an incredibly difficult thing that we put young women in. And I think, you know, what I would like is what's, what's really sexually hot is a man seeing a woman and thinking, God, she's really interesting. I'd love to get to know her. I'm so interested in what she thinks, you know, those things. And, and given that we live in hookup culture, the last thing he's interested in is anything she's got to say. All he wants is, you know, his quick 10 minutes and off he says to the next one. So women really are the collateral damage of this. And I think it does incredible damage to their mental health because on the one hand, they do want to be seen and visible and they know that means looking fuckable. And on the other hand, and they really resent it because they understand they're being reduced to this, you know, disposable sex object. So I think it's a line that's very difficult to walk for individual women. And that's why we need a movement to support women to figure out how do you negotiate being heterosexual and wanting to be with men in a patriarchal culture that trains men to hate women? Yeah, I don't think there's any easy answers for that, honestly. 
No, there's not. There really isn't. And I wish I had, you know, five easy answers to women. But it's not. It, it's all. And that's what I feel so. It's so hard about the work I do. It's like, you know, you have it. When after one of my conferences, and some people are giving different talks, I say, these are the five things you can do. Well, I haven't got five things you can do. I've only got really one, which is a feminist revolution. And that's not an easy thing to do. We're going to have to build a movement. We're going to have to fight and all of those things. And I think, you know, what we've really lost in feminism because of these fights between the faux feminists and the radical feminists is we've lost a supportive movement. When, you know, I'm older than you are. And when I came out as a feminist, I had this fabulous support system around me of wonderful women and now what you get especially you know when you see on social media is just women tearing into each other just tearing into and even and i have to lay some of the blame now the radical feminist movement i've seen you know things on facebook and other places where you know you don't tear into each other let's forge sisterhood and let's figure out although we might disagree on certain things what is the best way we can support each other the culture is tearing us apart don't add to this it's almost like a divide and rule isn't it the only thing that i have to add to that is that um you know a lot of the beauty that we do is for the male gaze and so one of the ways that i've been kind of coping with that is by embracing the female gaze, if that makes sense. Well, no, Gail, what you're describing about, you know, oh, I want someone who, um, you know, a man who thinks I'm like funny and interesting and likes my personality and so on. I, you know, I heard that and I'm like, yeah, that's like my ultimate fantasy. And you think about, you know, a lot of romance novels where, you know, it's like an ordinary girl, but the guy, you know, just falls madly in love with her because of her, you know, personality or whatever. That That's like every woman's, you know, fantasy, I guess. And so I think like, there is value in maybe just like being honest with yourself about what you want and, you know, what you think makes you attractive and, hmm. you know, not really concerning yourself with whether men think that's attractive. Like the PhD thing, like men say all the time, like, oh, I can't fuck your PhD. And it's like, well, I don't care if you can't fuck my PhD. I mm -hmm. want a PhD because mm -hmm. it benefits mm -hmm. me and it's mm -hmm. what I want. And it gives me power in the world. It gives me power as well. They're not going to stop trying to have sex with us. That's kind of the whole like gaffe about the whole thing, right? Like if we all get PhDs, then they're just going to be forced to have sex with women with PhDs and then like, cry about it, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm just thinking... Given, given the Texas anti-abortion law, maybe the actual best way is for all to be get high-level careers, and that's the best form of contraception. You know, the guys all want a male from powerful women. Really, the best form of contraception is being a powerful woman because men don't want that. They won't. <laughs> it's all bluff. <laughs> some guys are into that, though. <laughs> There's some, some men are, but you know what often happens is when men are attracted to powerful women, often once they get in a relationship, they do their damnedest to yeah. put the power away from yes. them. Because yeah. they didn't like that, you know. And, you know, I can say some stuff personally about um, when I met my partner, many, and we've been together well over 40 years, was, was so interesting. I remember we were out with friends and we were like 19 and there was four different couples, all had heterosexual and we were having a dinner uh, somebody you know had a dinner party we were students so you can imagine what that looked like as a student dinner party but anyway we're having fun and then suddenly and david and i are having this real discussion about feminism because i i really felt that this was a man i really wanted to be with but we had to he had to understand on a deep level what feminism was and i turn around and all the other three couples have gone off to have sex 
and we're fighting over the dinner table. And I remember at one point I turned to him and I said to him, look, if we go any further in our relationship, then you have to recognize that my civil and human rights are fully equal to yours and they're not up for negotiation. That's it. And he just looked at me and he said, you're right. You're absolutely right. So, you know, there's plenty of time to have sex. I think it was more important that we got that out of the way before we could move on to a serious relationship because I was not going to be with any man who in any way didn't recognize and fully respect my civil and human rights and that it was going to be a relationship based on uh, justice and equality. Otherwise, I was going to walk away. And he saw that he, and he wanted that. But that was a different generation of men as well completely different generation of men yeah i find men these days like older men have this sort of like benevolent sexism you know like i I don't want to say benevolent but it's like slightly more benign it still sucks but it's like not as actively hostile as what a lot of younger men are having um i think what we're going through is this huge backlash to feminism and uh, misogyny has become so much more extreme to sort of counteract that. Totally. And you can thank porn for that. Yeah. I mean, this is where we get into porn. I mean, you know, the, I mean, you know, the, what we, the studies show, you know, what guys want to do when you, when you ask them in studies, what are the sex acts you want? It's always number one is come on a face. Then number two is anal. And number three is a threesome. And, you know, again, when I was growing up, if a guy said, can I come on your face? We would have run a mile. We would have thought he was a psychopath or something. Honest to God. Yeah, you know, who is this man? And I'm getting the hell out of here. Whereas today, you know, what my students would tell me, that they don't even ask if they can come on your face. They just do. And they've seen that in porn. That's for them the power over women. They're above her. They can, you know, come on her face. She's degraded and debased. And they know she's degraded and debased because, well, one particular study that was really interesting out of NYU where the guys actually said in the end, we really like this because we know she hates it. Yeah, that's horrifying. So what do you say about that? Trained, that men have been trained to be sexually aroused by harming women and hurting women and degrading them. That's what this is. This is thank you to the porn industry who have created a whole generation of men where there's um, eroticization of violence against women is kind of normalized now. So we've gone over some of the challenges that our pornified culture has presented to young women. What can we really do? Like what? I know you've done a lot of work with culture reframe. So can you kind of explain what your work's about and then how it's uh, working to impact or at least change uh, the conversation around porn? Yeah. So what we are is we define ourselves as a public health organization and we see pornography as the public health crisis of the digital age. And we build programs uh, specifically for parents, for educators, for medical professionals, experts in general, to how to help young people build resilience and resistance to porn culture. So this is what we do is sort of raise awareness. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is when you're saying, you know, that pornography is a major form of sex education today, which we know from studies it is, the question is, what are we going to do about that? And one of the answers is we need really good sex set to help kids really think through what's going on in this culture. And what you notice is most sex ed programs, most of them are crap anyway, and don't deal with anything. And, um, 
so what happens is the kids, and you know, in, in the UK it was mandated. It's not in the US where I am, but in the UK it was mandated in 2020 to teach sex and relationship education. And what happened is Culture Reframe got all of these teachers coming at us begging for materials on how to teach sex ed with a porn critical lens. Because if you don't do that, what happens if you have kids coming into the class, especially the boys, but also girls, but especially the boys, whose sexual template has been formed by pornography? So then if you don't deal with that and help them deconstruct and interrogate what they have been taught by the porn industry and the porn culture, there's no way you're going to be able to teach sex ed, which is based more on connection, relationships, intimacy, equality. So what we're doing on October the 2nd and 3rd is we are holding what I think is the first ever um, international conference and how to teach sex ed with a feminist porn critical lens. And we've got uh, speakers from um, sex ed, from um, child safeguarding. We've got you and we're all excited about what you're going to talk about. Uh, we've got a whole array of speakers looking at how can we tackle this through sex ed that specifically has this porn critical lens and of course you can't have a porn critical lens unless you've got a feminist lens so it's going to be a great conference we've got speakers from the us uk sweden india um, Turkey, and we're going to be really analysing what is the best way to build sex education. And it's going to be much broader than just that, because we are also going to be looking at how pornography impacts young people. What are the social, emotional, cognitive and sexual harms? And how do we then build materials to support these young people to really get rid of the, the ideologies and the templates and the narratives of pornography. And this is really what I would say a progressive education is about. You have to unpack the hegemony, the mainstream dominant ideology, in this case that's produced by pornography for what we're dealing with, and help them sit back and think, well, what have I learned from pornography? Because pornography is not just about images of sex. What pornography is, is a whole discourse and narrative and story about masculinity, about femininity, about patriarchy, about relationships, about um, sexual class equality or inequality. So we're really coming at this with everything we've got. And um, it's very affordable. We have tickets for people who um, uh, are low resourced. Um, and I don't think it's ever, and everyone has ever tried this really before, is to really tackle this from a multidisciplinary viewpoint and keeping true to the feminist um, project, which is to basically make sure that we do not bring up a generation of young people thinking that pornography is should be their form of sex ed and that pornography is the way to go and have sex because that's what we know is happening. The more the kids are going to porn, the more they're having porn sex. Yeah, we're really excited to be able to add our voice to the conversation because I think, um, I mean, we we feel very confident that like we're going to be able to expand. We've, we've been expanding, obviously, off of just Reddit, but onto our general social media. And the ideas that we've been putting out have 
really been resonating with women who maybe aren't like traditional feminists or like traditional, even traditional Redditors or people who are super plugged in online into like these conversations. So our hope by adding our voice and also expanding our platform is that we make this kind of information accessible to women who are just like regular everyday women who maybe aren't even like super plugged into like the whole feminist network, but like who can really just start to see and understand how uh, porn has really influenced the culture in a lot of really negative ways and and help them to navigate in their dating life um, how to circumvent that. Really excited because I think for us, especially too, we're going to, we're going to learn as much as uh, we possibly can from this, um, from uh, this conference as well as like putting our two cents about what we're doing. Um, So Great. Well, I'm so happy to have you. I mean, it's so important what you're doing. And we've also got, interesting, we've put a lot of pro-feminist men in um, to speak about how you work with men to basically get them to see the um, sex class privileges they have and to unpack that. So we're doing uh, some sessions on what does consent mean in a patriarchal society when girls have been socialized from the word go to comply with mass- with patriarchy. So we've, we've got people like Jackson Katz speaking. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but um, he's one of the, I would say, probably the world's leading uh, pro-feminist man developing programs and education for men. Um, because, you know, often what happens at these conferences is we talk about women all the time, but the truth is, you know, men are often the problem and we need to address that and not in a way that is kind of comes after them, although, you know, many of us are aggravated what men are doing, but in ways that give them an opportunity to step back and think how they've been socialized into the porn culture. And is this what they want to be? Are these the men they want to be? Do they want to look in the mirror and think to themselves, I'm a guy who jerks off to violence against women? And I would really argue, I think many men actually probably don't want that. I'm sure there's those who do and, you know, those need to be dropped on a desert island and kept far away from. <laughs> you need to go to Rapist Island. Yeah. <laughs> on our Rapist Island. This is a recurring joke. <laughs> Call back to a previous episode. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, the irony here is that as feminists, we get called man-haters and we're the opposite. We actually are the only group rooting for men's humanity. We're the only group who've argued over and over and over again that what pornography says about men is not true. That men are not just life support systems for erect penises. They're fully human. (laughs) Yeah, this is the that's the image of men in porn, honestly. (laughs) Systems for an erect penis, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, we know men who we know many of them who are not that. A few of them are, I mean. (laughs) Some men embrace that with their whole heart. (laughs) Yeah. No, but I know what you're saying. There's plenty of men who, and, and, and to uh, reiterate your point, there's definitely a hunger for that. And, um, I mean, obviously there's a huge, there's actually a huge movement towards that on Reddit itself with things like NoFap or, or men who are trying to unplug from the porn network. Unfortunately, it feels like the only people who have really like legitimately addressed this with men has been, has come from the religious right. But of course they come from a, a certain ideological framework. Yeah, no fap doesn't. No fap is not. Um, uh, Alex Rhodes, who runs that, is absolutely not religious, mm-hmm, not right wing mm-hmm. in any ways, progressive. Um, but some, a lot of the uh, so-called recovery programs are, are run yeah. by the religious right wing and don't address. You know, you know, unlike any other substance they're hungry for people that aren't from the religious right to just tell them like what they kind of maybe intuitively are feeling and knowing and so i think that's exactly. that's 
hopefully what this will provide a, a, an actual scientific critical lens about how it's affecting people. That's not just like coming from people who are trying to do it based on, uh, you know, their beliefs in God. Well, that's not happening at our conference. I can tell you that we're a progressive, you know, feminist, um, and, um, you know, often, I, you know, I get phone calls from journalists and they'll say, so, Gail Downs, you're a right wing um, conservative. And I'll say, well, actually, I'm a left wing Jewish radical feminist. So apart from that, you got everything right. You know, I mean, you know, this, this is culture reframed is a science based research driven organization. We are not a faith based organization at all. And I think in the United States, there's probably some others in Europe, but I'm saying in the United States, we are the only anti-porn organization that is not faith-based and that comes at this from a scientific research-driven place, which, you know, is ridiculous. Because yeah, it's we, a shame. Isn't it? It's we should have a ton of comp tons of competition out there, and we haven't at all. So this is why we were really driven to have this conference. And, and what I love about it is, first of all, we're coming at this from so many different approaches, from pediatrics, from feminist theory, from neuroscience, from activism. So, you know, for those two days, we're just going to have so many speakers from so many different angles. But of course, what joins them all is a feminist understanding that pornography causes violence against women and children in its production and consumption. That's what we all agree on. And then everyone takes their own area of expertise and expands on that. So there's going to be um, lots of speakers and then we're going to have breakout sessions and discussions. And um, I have to say, we went live um, last week and we've had hundreds already um, register and we've not even started really our full uh, on media uh, promotion. So clearly there's a hunger for this, just given our registration figures. And just to kind of touch on your point before about how there's just no uh, porn critical education that's not faith-based, That's uh, that's been a really interesting realization for us because I, I know recently the New York Times has run a piece about like uh, sex educators that are kind of sort of trying to bridge the gap um, but they're still coming at it from a very pro porn lens to, and it's actually, um, I think there was one woman who had taught it in like a, a pretty elite private school. And like the parents are like, so outraged, she actually got fired. And so now instead of like retooling the porn critical education and like looking for existing literature from people like yourself, it's like, they're trying to push the idea that like all these parents are reactionary. I think this woman was like literally showing people porn. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. She was showing the kids porn. I mean, which of course is a complete violation of their rights. Okay. And two, it's illegal because they were under 18, you know? Um, and, and what, and interestingly, a lot of, um, people in the UK contacted me because there's private organizations now developing curriculum and they sent me some of the uh, porn curriculum that they're teaching around sex ed and porn and it's a lot of it is pro-porn I mean they're saying things like there's no evidence that porn can affect, harm you or it has a negative impact and you should learn how to use it responsibly that's like telling somebody how to drive drunk responsibly Right? I mean, you wouldn't do that. So what we're trying to do is really fill the gap here and come at this through a porn critical lens that is not in any way faith-based or driven by morality, but is driven by science and driven by activism. I mean, that's the other thing. We need activists doing this, feminist activists, because, you know, who really makes the change in the long run? 
It's feminist activists when it comes to this issue. The science is really important because we use that as our tools to make the argument. But ultimately, you couldn't have any piece of science that would convince the oppressor to stop oppressing the oppressed, right? So we feel with pornography, as much as we, you know, the science is so crucial and it's, and it's all showing exactly what we're saying about the harms, it's the activists who are going to have to change this world. Yeah, it's been very, very strange to me how they've, how there's been this media almost like blackout of any information that actually does show that porn is having a, like a negative effect individually and culturally. They seem to focus on like either studies that are somewhat inconclusive or saying that like, oh, it's not actually causing men to go out and like physically beat up women as much, but like all of the other research about how it's depicting criminalized sexual activity as normal, about how it's uh, leading to men uh, uh, having more sexually coercive behaviors towards women for which there is research. It's like they're summarily ignoring that. What totally, do you, how totally do you feel did. about that? Or like, how does that, I, I don't get the point of doing that. And like, why, uh, why do you think there's been such a media blackout and admitting that like, there's actually some harmful effects of porn? Well, there's, I think, a couple of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of economic connections between the mainstream media and the porn industry. You've got to remember that. Money speaks louder than anything. Also, a lot of the um, journalists today have been brought up in a media, in a porn culture. So they themselves have internalized porn, the porn scripts. So what's interesting is when I do, and I, you know, I get interviewed a lot, I really do bring to the journalists a ton of research and say, look, in the social science community, when we're discussing pornography, we're not saying does it harm or not. We know that from 40 years of research. What we're doing is doing a more sort of nuanced analysis of the harms and what are the protective factors. If you live in the social science community, nobody thinks that porn has no harm. I mean, we've just got too much research to show. And what increasingly the neuroscience research is showing how um, the dopamine releases um, reframe and reshape the brain of the men and boys who are using it. So I, I think what's going on here is that the media have a vested interest in promoting pornography. Also, you know, you have what's called the Free Speech Coalition, a hideous name, but it's the lobbying arm of the porn industry. They do a ton of press releases. They're always on the phone with um, journalists. So they have a lot of um, power in shaping the narrative. And often as feminists, we don't have that same power. So this is why why we're holding this conference as well is to introduce people to the research. We have um, some of the great researchers out there talking about their research. Um, so you're getting, we're going to give sort of something for everybody from research right through to activism. I'm really excited for the part about having men talk about porn to men because, you know, having conversations with men about porn as a woman, it's challenging because it's almost like, you know, for men who are very misogynistic, they, they aren't going to listen to women. It's unfair, but that's just the reality. It's, it's like they only believe it when it comes, when they hear it from another man. Exactly. Which is terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's terrible that it's, it's like that, but it's the unfortunate reality that if we want to change things, we have to get men on board and, you know, speaking out. Yeah, it's the reality. And there are men on board. I have to tell you, I, I've worked with um, many of my co-authors have been men and they are, you know, as opposed to porn as feminists are, they're, they're pro-feminist men. And also they have an insight 
that women don't have in the sense that I have to say, I've studied porn for over 30 years. I know the research inside and out. I know the economics of the industry. And on some level, I really don't understand it. There's something about it in that knowing place where I really, when I look at it, there's a part of me that still doesn't understand how is this arousing. And what's interesting with the men that I've worked with who are anti-porn and have a great critique is they have a very hard time doing this research. The reason being is they hate porn, they hate the violence it causes, and yet when they're doing the research, they get aroused. And they feel like their body is betraying them. These are men who feel that that is intense bodily betrayal, given what their politics are and how they really feel about porn. You can groom people. I mean, uh, Facebook actually just came under fire because uh, they have they have moderators that um, go through a lot of the explicit content that gets reported. And one of the things that the moderators were saying is that just from looking at like they would I mean, they would see really, really like disgusting, disturbing, illegal things like people sexually abusing animals, et cetera. And he said just like repeated exposure to the violence. It started to almost like he had a reaction to some of the sexualized images. It gives a PTSD. Oh, yeah. It gave him PTSD. Yeah. And like severe PTSD, both because like it's unexpected, but also like, you know, yeah, him judging himself. I mean, like this was, I was never like this. I never used to have these thoughts. And now these thoughts are intrusive because I've been ex- exposed to these images exactly. so, so often. Exactly. Well, you know, I heard a talk by, um, I think it was the head of the police in Sweden where they were um, talking about, um, you know, the, the child sexual abuse images and how the police are dealing with it. They said that the police who deal with child sexual abuse images have more PTSD than the, hom- than the detectives who deal with homicide. I could believe it, yeah. And that they have to switch them out about every three months because they just... Uh, and actually, um, one of the people who's going to be speaking, Dr. Sharon Cooper, who is a pediatrician, a forensic pediatrician, she actually trains um, people in the FBI how to deal with the trauma of what they're looking at. And Sharon's one of our opening um, speakers, and, and she's a actual, as I say, forensic pediatrician, and she also runs, has her own uh, practice. And I don't think I've ever met anybody who knows more about the effects of pornography on kids than Sharon. Just listening to her for half, for forty five minutes will like change your world. Incredible, because she deals with the victims of it. She deals with the perpetrators. I mean, just in t- and I met Sharon because both of us were expert witnesses. Um, against a very well-known pornographer and I'm happy to say that we actually bankrupted him and that's how I met her many, many years ago and (laughs) we actually did we bankrupted him and um, we took down the we took down his uh, industry his uh, company which was great by the way wonderful (laughs) a highlight of one's life yeah <laughs> Queen. Yeah, and the other thing is um now we know as well as what's his name on Jeremy. He's got how many cases against him? Of, yes. And yes. I think there's 30 cases against him of sexual abuse. But you know what? He's been in over 1,500 porn movies. So I would argue that he's probably sexually abused well over 3,000 women, not 30 women. Oh, for sure. You know? You know, because what is porn if not the sexual abuse of women? And he's a particularly unsavory porn performer um, who's really sadistic. Why is Ron Jeremy, like, the number one 
male porn performer. I don't get it. He gives me the creeps. That's another female gaze problem, okay? Like, I... <laughs> I don't want to see fucking Ron Jeremy. Like, who let this creep in? Yeah. <laughs> He's not very pleasant to look at. He certainly is not. But you know what? It's interestingly, I'll tell you why Ron Jeremy was so good, successful in the early years. Because he could sustain an erection for a long period of time and not ejaculate. Uh, now yeah. he wouldn't make it in the porn industry because of Viagra. Right? If you notice, Viagra changed the whole scene because now they have much more sort of, you know, men we would consider conventionally hot who can go in it because the Viagra helps them sustain their... Just barely, but yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm, no, it's I'm right. Teasing. I mean, um, it's, it's really interesting when you see the change when Viagra hit and what the men look like because, you know, there was very few men who could sustain an erection for that length of time and then when the director said, you know, come, who could come at the, uh, uh, you know, the drop of a hat, he was one of the few. That's why he was so successful. He, he would not get, looking like he does, he would not get into porn today. And anyway, hopefully he's headed to prison. I hope he's headed for prison. And, you know, I, I debated him. I think it was on CNN. Oh, you debated Ron Jeremy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on CNN and he kept saying, you know, and, and, you know, my job when I go on to debate pornographers is to basically just cut them to pieces, right? That to go in there, show no mercy and just destroy them. And I was really going after him. You know, he kept coming back and I was just coming after him, after him. And at one point he said something like that woman. And he pointed to me. I said, well, my name is Dr. Gail Dines, not that woman. And because they're so used to treating women with disrespect and then, you know, kept interrupting me. And I said, you know, and I actually at one point I said, you know, I'm not surprised you're interrupting me because have you ever listened to a woman in your life wrong, Jeremy? Because that's not your job, is it? Your job is to treat them as disposable sex objects and move on to the next one. So this is why it's such a problem debating pornographers, because you don't know how to listen to a woman. I just looked it up on YouTube. I can't wait to watch that immediately after. We'll put this in the show notes. You know, I hate they took out the best bits when I really went after him. Really? They edited it out. Yes, the parts where I really went for the jugular, they took out. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Which is really upsetting. That, that's how you know it's like a media conspiracy to, you know, promote porn. They'll, they'll cut out the parts where you actually, like, <laughs> win the argument and then create a more biased narrative. Yeah, but I have to say, it's, it's you know, talk about cathartic when you've got a, a male pornographer and your job is just to eviscerate them in public. What's a better thing than that? That's a radical feminist dream, you know? We should do a Rosa scrote for Ron Jeremy after this. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Honest to God. We should do one of our episodes. Oh, what a creepy, creepy, horrible guy. Absolutely. But this is also why I don't buy the argument that porn can ever be feminist. Because if you look at, even now, like the actors who are in porn, they never, you know, like Lilith said, ever appeal to the female gaze. Ever. No. Well, they're not, they're not, you know what they're meant to do actually is interesting. What the, the role of the man in pornography is to really the, the focus of the camera where they, where they put the gaze is on his penis. Right, so that the man who is the users who are watching it can identify with him and his penis rather than having to see 
him completely because they want to put themselves in that position doing to the women what thinking of themselves doing to the women what they're doing so what's very interesting when you look at some films is the men are really backgrounded and it's the, their penises that are foreground yeah that's actually really really disappointing you know, as a heterosexual woman because and this is why i feel like they're gaslighting us about this being like empowering and like sexually arousing for women because i'm like i can't go in and like type in a category of a men's body type that i like but like you can find porn for every single minuscule piece of a woman's body, but there's nothing for men. Let's just say I like, oh, I like tall men with like broad shoulders and I don't know, like uh, 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 dark eyes. Like you can't even find that kind of thing. And if you did, if you did, you wouldn't like it after you'd watched him anyway. Believe me, right. that would be a, a complete arousal killer watching a guy in porn, you know. I mean, like, can I find handsome man porn and not all these like weird bridge trolled porn? Like, but no, there's nothing. Left. I almost feel like they cast ugly men in porn on purpose because a lot of the men who watch porn are probably you know not intimidate not that attractive and so they that's why they identify with them well that's actually all men watch porn now true all men do it's the truth is you know given the studies it's um you know there was one study they were doing in a university where they were wanted it was in um experimental psychology they wanted to measure the effects of pornography and they had to cancel the study because they couldn't find a control group of students who hadn't seen porn mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so i mean you're not gonna it's it's ev- all guys watch porn i mean it's what's really interesting what would be really interesting would to do research on the guys who don't watch porn they're the deviants right the guys who don't watch porn are the deviants in our culture now I mean, I've met, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to find a man who's never seen porn, but I've met a, a fair amount of men who don't watch porn, who have watched porn in the past, but just like realize this is not adding to my life Correct. in any material Correct. way. So I, I don't want to like, because um, one, one of the discussions that we've had with some of our members, I'm like, well, it's impossible to find guys that don't watch porn. I feel it's actually, first of all, if you like express that it's a problem and like he gets like, uh, you know, he gets, feels like he's being cornered and stuff. Like this is some kind of like a uh, necessity to his life. It's almost like a indicator that his sexual needs are always going to come before yours. And then secondly, the fact that like a lot of women who have had sex with men who are not porn watchers, it's the sex is just so demonstrably better that a lot of women don't want to go back. Right. You can't even go back. Oh yeah. I can't compare it. No, you can't. I mean, you know what? I think the best thing I ever heard a man, it was actually a college student describing, he said, porn taught me how to masturbate into a woman. Yeah, yeah, Gosh, that's, yeah. that's what it feels like. Yeah. It feels like being a flashlight. Yeah, you're being masturbated into. And, you know, I, I my students used to tell me they immediately know when a guy's a porn user. They can feel it in everything, his body, the way he relates to them, the way he's dissociated during sex or he's pulling. Because, you know, what we found in studies is that men who watch porn, and, and it doesn't have to be a lot of porn, when they're actually having sex with a real woman there um, and not watching porn and they're having sex, they pull up their favorite porn scenes and they play them in their head as they're having sex with that real woman. So of course they are masturbating into it. Yeah. How wild and like pathetic is that in some respects? Like who? Yeah. And and it makes sense because I know sexlessness uh, is rising among uh, young men in particular. And a lot of it is because young women are sort of opting out of having sex rather. They don't want to be masturbated on. And it's because the, the experiences are not, Um, enticing for a lot of young women anymore yeah unfortunately though many women know they're being they they know something's wrong the sex is lousy and bad and they feel like a you know piece of meat but they haven't got the language to say he's masturbating into me because that term suddenly 
plus makes everything crystal clear what's happening. You don't exist. He's not with you. He's dissociated. He's miles away from you, although he might be on top of you. But it doesn't matter because he's not there. He's not present. Yeah. We get that a lot from women who, you know, when they find FDS, a lot of women say, you know, I'd always known something was wrong, but I didn't really know. I didn't have the vocabulary for it or I didn't know, you know, basically FDS, we make things crystal clear and help women understand exactly why it's not, you know, what exactly is wrong. We're explicit. We just, we have a, ta- a, a flair called porn sick limp dick and we don't really apologize for it. We just say, yeah, we don't beat around the bush. <laughs> no, you're incredibly, I have to say the stuff listening to you, you are so incredibly articulate and you've actually, you, what you do, I love why being on this show is you take all these concepts and it's like you absolutely um, how can I put it? Like like a trash compactor, you bring it down to its <laughs> core and you just spit out these pearls of wisdom, you know? I mean, just wonderful the way that you deal with the concepts and make them accessible. We're millennials, our attention spans are short, so like we try to make our media that way. <laughs> yeah, it has to be in 280 characters or less, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, but it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do what you're doing. I mean, it's the hardest thing is to take complex concepts and make them accessible. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's very, and you do a fantastic job of that. Absolutely fantastic Thank job. Thank you. Thank I wanted you. to tell Gail a little bit about, um, I don't know if you listened to our episode about BDSM. In that episode, I talk a bit about how when I was 14, I dated a guy who was 16 and he showed me porn that was like very, um, you know, like degrading. And he pretty much was like, this is sex. Like, this is what I want to do. And yeah. cause I, you know, I'd learned how to, you know, put on condoms and stuff, but I didn't really you know, they don't teach you in sex ed about boundaries or what's normal sexual behavior and what's not, right? So seeing that and you think, oh, well, that's, I guess that's what everyone's talking about. That's the sex thing, right? So it's alarming to me how porn is basically used to groom young women into not having boundaries or to do sexual things for the man that maybe they don't particularly enjoy. Totally. What was creepy is like, looking back, my boyfriend would praise me whenever we did something gross and then you know because at the time you know you're you're a teenager you know your hormones are you know crazy you want boys to like you and so you think like oh i'm doing i'm doing good right so when you get praised for that and so it's a very like insidious form of grooming oh oh absolutely that's what what, again studies have found that um often men know they what especially around anal sex when they want their partners to have anal sex the way they introduce it is through porn is they'll get their partners to watch anal sex porn and they and i remember interviewing one guy and he was saying how he was very carefully judging her response and as he was showing her more and more anal sex porn over time he was figuring out is this the time now to um anally penetrate her because he was grooming her and he had a very sharp eye on at what point could he then come in for the kill for anal sex because she didn't want it and he was using that to groom and also you know pimps use pornography to groom and um, prostituted girls and women that's one of the biggest groomers is pornography to show them what to do and you know what's really never taught barely ever taught in sex ed which is like the thing you can't talk about women's sexual pleasure yeah. 
right? You're told you're going to get pregnant, you're going to get STIs, you're going to, you're never told that you are entitled to sexual pleasure. Right. <laughs> that's completely missing from most. And that's another thing we're going to talk about at the conference is the role of teaching girls and women about their right to sexual pleasure. Because what studies show is the more you foreground sexual pleasure in sex ed, the less likely she is to be sexually victimized and the more likely she is to put sex off till she's older. And you know why? Because she suddenly realizes she has a right to say no. And I don't want to put, I don't want to put the blame on the women by any means or girls for being raped. It's always on the men and boys, but there's a way in which telling, showing the sexual pleasure that she is entitled to and has a right to provides the capacity for her to build more sexual boundaries around her. Yeah. No, when I was younger, I remember feeling like this is something I have to do. Mm. I, I remember feeling this like deep sense of dread. And they're putting it in teen magazines. Yeah, yeah, Teen Vogue is terrible. I mean, like teaching, like, especially teaching, like, for example, young girls how to do anal and like BDSM choking in Teen Vogue. Yeah, yeah, that was, there was a, a huge thing on in. Teen, it was enormous showing you what to do, how to get ready for it, not telling you, by the way, what can happen if anything goes wrong. First of all, it's not that pleasurable for women. And secondly, if anything goes wrong, you know, you can cause in ter terrible internal damage, terrible internal damage. And none of that was really discussed. It's almost treated as a given that this is something you're supposed to do. Exactly, exactly. And you're a prude if you don't. You're a prude. You know, they've got you every which way. You're a prude. As Nana, people writing this are, don't even have, like, the credentials to be talking about it. I think exactly. the, the author of that particular article, who we've kind of uh, lambasted before, um, she didn't have any credentials on the topic. And everyone's like, why are you having someone who's just essentially a person with a bachelor's degree in journalism, like, trying to explain complex yes, sex that's going to give you a good sex Yeah, nothing. Background. And yeah, so it's yeah. not even that they're just giving, that they're broached, that they're breaching the topic to young kids. Cause remember like when you're talking about the teen magazines, the target audience is like 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Cause everyone exactly. above that is exactly. reading the adult magazines, broaching that subject with very young kids. And then with someone who is so clearly uneducated on the topic. I know it was outraged. That did get a lot of pushback. I have to say, I mean, I think if they took it a little bit too far and I'm really glad that they got pushback from that one, but you're absolutely right. What is a, somebody with a degree in journalism doing dispensing sex education? Just uh, reinforcing the narrative that they want. I mean, that's just what it comes down to. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, well, can you imagine to, you know, having someone in a medical journal who's got no medical background talking about that? I mean, it's ludicrous. Only in this do you not have, have to have any background in the topic that you're talking about. And it, it's kind of, and actually, I kind of wanted to ask you about this because sec, we've, uh, we were discussing about um, whether or not we should talk about, and I think we will at some point, like talk about like the sexology industry as a whole and how so much of it is. Some scams. of them are grifters, yeah. <laughs> some of them are just straight grifters. Like there's basically like these sexology diploma mills. They're not accredited. Some of them have been shut, have been shut down and they, they uh, sometimes uh, pull ideas from these quote unquote sex educators or sexologists that are just basically made up. Like they don't, they're not part of any type of formal research program. Then they just start to create a narrative that the media picks up on. Oh, sexology is terrible. It's a terrible field. A lot of them are just like sexually depraved people who want to feel okay with it. 
Yeah, it's really weird. And and it's it's sad because I feel like we could women could really use like legitimate research from like people who are biologists and like people who Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to give you a quote. So I was, when I first was doing this many, many years ago, one of the most famous um, sort of sex therapists, um, sex researchers was John Money. Have you heard of him? Yes, I've heard of John Money. Yeah, he was was from, I think... um, He was a psychologist who did the um, David Reimer study. Is that John Hopkins? Yes, he was at John Hopkins. So I was at a conference where... He gave um, the opening, the keynote lecture. And you know what he said? He said, we need to, and this is in my brain, I will never forget this. He said, we need to redefine incest as a love affair between two people of discrepant ages. What? (laughs) Yeah. In a full auditorium of, of experts, he said, a love affair between two people of discrepant ages. Incest? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I can remember we studied him in, in, um, like during my A level psychology. And, um, but yeah, when we read that, everyone's jaw, including like the men in the room, just dropped. We were just absolutely mortified. No, they've got a lot to answer for those people, the the so-called sexologists and the sex researchers. And actually, there's a lot of great feminist stuff written about that. Um, and I can, Name some of the, uh, Meg, uh, Meg Tyler, Megan Tyler has done some great work on this about really looking at the, um, core of the theories and where they came from and how it developed and how misogynist the whole, uh, field is. It really, you know, sex educators often are some of the worst that we come up against when we're trying to have an, you know, discussion around pornography. I remember being on, um, interviewed for Women's Health, the magazine, and it was actually an interview. And I went to New York for it. And I'm talking to this therapist and she's talking about, we're talking about being filmed about pornography. And in the break, she was saying to me how much she loves pornography and watching pornography. And she does that for fun. And this was a sex therapist. Yeah. When I hear women who say, I watch porn with my husband, we love to do it. It's a fun couple activity together. I'm like, what the is wrong with you yeah totally i've never seen feminist porn like they keep saying that there's feminist porn and like i've never seen it because like it's so male gazy yeah I, ha- I haven't either i haven't either and i've believe me i've looked for it everywhere and um first of all you can't have such a thing you can't have the word feminist next to the word pornography right it's an oxymoron but even those things they call feminist porn is is Basically, you know, I remember going on Erica Lust's website and she's like considered the queen of um, uh, feminist porn. And I remember looking at the stuff and there was a woman on her knees with a penis right down her throat. And I thought, oh, I've never seen that before. This is really novel, you know. I mean, they do the same (laughs) shit that the regular pornographers do. They just hide behind the flag of feminism. They admit that part of that is because it's not easily monetizable. Quote unquote feminist porn isn't monetizable as as readily as porn that is catering to the male gaze. So in order for them to stay profitable, they end up having to create the same kind of thing, right? They do the same thing. They do the same thing. Yeah. You know, I've got a great story about Erica Luss. I was contacted last year by two uh, filmmakers who were doing a documentary on Erica Lust. And I said, I'm not really interested in talking about it because I don't agree with her. And, you know, any documentary around this, I'm sure is going to be praising her. And they said, no, we absolutely promise we're going to do a balanced viewpoint. We really want you 
So they interviewed me for two hours, right? And I said to them, you know, are you really going to give um, a critique of her? And they said, yes, we'll use you. The documentary comes out. I think it's an hour long. It's 58 minutes on Erica Lust and two minutes on me. So that's so I saw it. So then they said, they had the cheek to then write to me, said, will you promote our documentary? And I said, yes. And I went on my Facebook page and I said, um, here's my promotion for the documentary on Erica Lust. Don't watch it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my promotional. Don't watch it. It's shit, you know? I mean, they love Erica Lust. They really do. And let me tell you, the stuff she does, the way she debases women, and she really gaslights them because she says it's feminist porn. So, like, when one of them's having a really hard time and they're upset, because it's feminist, she gives them a bottle of water, you know, and says, and puts her arm around them and says, it'll be fine, now carry on. (laughs) Oh, oh no Jesus <laughs> I can't bear her If I hear that yeah. name again You know It makes me want to go Into a full on Feminist fit <laughs> So Gail I'd like to get Your reaction to This idea that's been Floating around On LibFem uh, Twitter Which is uh, The concept of Entry level porn For kids <sighs> Deep exasperated sigh um, I don't know If you've heard About this <laughs> Yeah, I get asked this a lot. You mean, what should we show kids? Like, there's, so there's a, I think she was a journalist. I can't remember her her name, Ro. Maybe you can help me out. But she posted something like, oh, you know, kids are going to want, you know, find porn anyway. So we may as well, like, show them porn that shows consent and blah, blah, blah to, like, teach them, you know, I don't know what what her point was. But she basically floated this idea of entry-level porn for kids. And, of course, she got dragged, right, because it's a it's a terrible idea, but I'd just like to get your... I'd like to hear you roast it. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't know what you'd show them, because the point in... I don't know anywhere where you could get non Yeah, what would you porn. show them, exactly? Yeah, the number one. Number two is, even if it's not overtly violent, the very fact that you're commodifying and monetizing a woman's body is a form of violence against that woman and all women. So... You know, to start legitimizing pornography in any way to kids is just ludicrous because what they'll, they'll listen to this and, you know, adults are saying this is okay and it's entry level. But what you're doing is you're just basically telling them that misogyny and pornography is fine. So I'm completely opposed to that. It's like, you know, what's, what should we give them an entry level cigarette? Right. At 14. <laughs> I was actually just about to say, I put, that was my response. I said, it's like we hear from representatives of the tobacco industry about giving them, you know, mango flavored and grape flavored cigarettes to, you know, get them hooked on it young kind of thing yeah, so. and let's do entry level entry level alcohol you know what should we do for that yeah it's just a way of getting them addicted from a young age like. totally totally you know plus I, I i feel like they don't know how kids work like if it if parents try to make like sex cool or they try to make like feminist porn cool then they're gonna want to go look for taboo stuff just to be rebellious you know what i'm saying like it almost seems like they would that would backfire because then it would become like part of lame you know, lame parent culture. Oh, totally. On so many levels. You know, and it was interesting because um, a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, I did um, a kind of tour of LA and I must have spoken about 20 different places. And I have to say, it was mainly in LA I got this question all the time. Should we show them Playboy so they don't go to the hardcore porn? And I 
I kept getting this question. It's just a pipeline from one to the other. Exactly, exactly. So would you say I don't want my kids to get to heroin, so maybe I'll just give them at 12 some marijuana, you know, and let's see where they go with that. (laughs) Yeah. But but that question came up in L.A. over and over and over again. And, you know, no, and what that shows is an absolute lack of understanding of what um, sexuality is about, what pornography does to sexuality, and that you're actually saying to boys, you have the right and the privilege to look at women and masturbate to them because that's all they're worth. So you're reinforcing all of patriarchal ideology by showing them anything. Yeah, it seems there's like an aller- they have an allergy to boundaries almost. And I don't know what, what that is exactly is, but that's um, a lot of the justification for showing these kinds of things to children as, as well as like the BDSM conversation we had earlier was like, oh, I don't want to shame them for having fantasies. And I'm like, shaming them is quite a bit different from like actively introducing them to things, right? <laughs> Promoting it, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And also, you know, they say BDSM the alphabet soup but it's really s it's sadistic men on the prowl for vulnerable women that's that's what i found with my students who were so-called into the bdsm community so many of them the women had been raped and had sort of been led down the garden path to bdsm by these predators who could smell these women a mile off so, I mean, I, I, I deconstruct the BDSM and just say, let's highlight the S, the sadism of the men. I mean, I was in the BDSM community for a long time, about five years, and I I fully believe that the normalisation of BDSM is 100% to do with porn because all the dominant men, all the, the dominant, in quotation, you know, Mark's men that I met, you know, they all said I, I watched porn and then I found women you know, submissive women who I could act up my fantasies, you know, out on. And it is, it's a progressive erosion of boundary of the BDSM because because within a dynamic, they've even got something like, for example, soft limits, which basically means that um, it's basically a boundary that can be stretched. And so even then you see the breaking down of boundaries. Uh, you know, what's interesting as well is, you know, some of the prominent women in the so-called BDSM communities actually come forward to talk about the level of sexual abuse and rape and that this whole notion of safe words doesn't exist and that they've been really horribly hurt. It's honestly prolific. But okay, so the wild thing about the BDSM community is when it comes out that a dom was abusive or raped someone, they always say, oh, well, he's not a real dom, he's just an abuser. They use this no true Scotsman argument. And it's like, well, you know, all these guys who are claim to be doms are coming out and end up, you know, being abusive or, or rapists. And uh, it's almost like, there's some kind of relationship between wanting to be a sadist and, you know, being abusive, right? You know? You would think. Now, I was going to say, BDSM is, if we look at the history of BDSM, it was founded upon um, the Marquis de Sade, who was a, um, I think he was a French noble who... Um, who basically got his rocks off by by kidnapping and and sodomizing his servants. You know what? BDSM is a beard. That's what you do. If you're a sadistic guy and you want to beat the shit out of women and you don't want to think of yourself as a rapist, then you just say you're into the BDSM community. It's it's just a beard. Okay, so I, I 
often think that, you know, the alphabet soup of BDSM is a beard, that sadistic men who really want to just rape women, abuse women, um, don't want to see themselves in that way. So what they do is they use the BDSM argument and that way they can be woke and cutting edge and transgressive and they can rape women in the name of being woke and transgressive. So I've got very little patience with this. It's just it's sadism. And, and the ones I've met, and I'm often picketed by BDSM groups when I'm uh, giving lectures, and the men are particularly sadistic, particularly sadistic, and I can feel it oozing out of them. And they can also be shielded from their misogyny. Yeah. No, I've dated guys like that where they think that they're one of the good guys, but they don't want to be seen as a piece of shit abuser. And so that's why they do BDSM. Exactly. That's right. I mean, I'm into the BDSM community. You know, look at me. Look how woke I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Are we, do we have any more questions for Gail or our audience is going to love this. A lot of people were um, for the last episode, people were saying I could listen to five hours of Gail Dimes. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. I don't know if I've got five hours in me, yeah. to be honest with you, but never <laughs> <Yeah>. mind. <laughs> but I would, I, I'm so glad you had me back on, and I'm really grateful that you're promoting our conference. I'm so happy you're speaking. I'm glad to have I mean, you. I mean, you know, just wonderful that we've made this connection and that I'm sure it's going to continue. Because you really, in a way, are the, are the young women who embody the values of Culture Reframed. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so glad we kind of stumbled upon each other because we really need young women out there speaking about this world and what it's like to live in this world. And there's just, you know, and so many women are silenced through fear, cancel culture, what have you. So you're just providing a, an incredible, the goddesses work. That's what you're doing. The goddesses work. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And you know what would be great if there was a donor out there listening to this who wanted to make social change and really help you develop this into a, a movement? Because um, this is so critical. And nobody's better to take this on than you three. You're just wonderful. And Thank you so much. Yay, so this you. is the kind of work we need to be doing. This is exactly the kind of work we need to be doing. And I can't wait for you to be at the conference. I'm dying to hear what you've got to say. I'm so excited. So I'll make sure I come into that. your breakout session and be part of it and moderate it with the question and answers and everything. It's been great having you Thank back. Thank you. Thanks so Thank much. You so okay, well, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Anytime. And that's our show. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy for weekly bonus content. Uh, our bonus content last week was the second half of the 16 rules of misogyny. So if you wanted to continue that discussion, please check it out. Um, you can also check out our website at the female dating strategy.com. Uh, there's a forum there. If you want to interact with uh, other female dating strategy followers, uh, as well as follow us on Twitter at fem.strat. Thanks for listening Queens. And for all you scrotes out there, Sign up for the Culture Reframed Workshop so you can learn. Because you really need it. Yeah, you actually really, really, really need it. So, like, really need it. Like, a lot like of you really, need to read. Really need it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's on Saturday and Sunday, October 2nd through 3rd, 2021, uh, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Time, and then uh, 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. UK Time. It's called Taking on Porn, Developing Resilience and Resistance Through Sex Education. So please sign up. Uh, the website is culturereframe.org forward slash conference. Uh, we will be there giving our own lecture. So 
if you want the opportunity to listen to a lot of different academics on the impact of porn, as well as how to build resilience against porn culture, uh, this will be a wonderful workshop. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Thank you.